I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, what does it mean to be authentic? Do we act in a way that truly reflects who we are, or are there ulterior motives at play? And what you see coming through in Aristotle in particular is this reflection on whether when somebody performs a good action, as he puts it, whether, whether they're doing the action for its own sake. So you're not as we, you're not doing it in order to get some further other good, but because you yourself think it's good. And later, imposter syndrome. Psychologist Andrea Salazar-Nunez talks about how prevalent this can be among people of color. It may be a radical experience for a woman of color to be able to really tap into their authentic voice and not feel sort of that sense of um, imposter syndrome or a shame for not, you know, having the same sort of background as someone who has more of that privilege. Authenticity and listening to our inner selves. That's coming up on KCRW's Life Examined. Authenticity is a quality many of us admire and aspire to. I mean, how many times have we all been told, just be yourself? But what does this really mean, and how do we get there? Philosophers, both ancient and modern, have struggled with these questions. For example, are we truly being ourselves, or are we being the person others expect us to be? Do we do the right thing because it feels right, or because others will praise us for it? In such an individualistic society, authenticity has become a goal in and of itself, regardless of how that affects others. And many great minds, like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, argue that we're at our most authentic when we're in touch with the more passionate sides of our nature. Dennis McManus is a professor of philosophy at the University of Southampton in the UK, and he's the editor of Heidegger, Authenticity, and the Self. He studied the writings of both ancient and modern philosophers and written on a range of issues, including the nature of responsibility, selfhood, and self-knowledge. Dennis McManus, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. We'll, we'll jump into a large question here and an interesting one um, and would love your thoughts on it. Uh, what does it mean to be oneself? And, and this is a question I, I take it that philosophers have asked for, for thousands of years. What, where do you see this first yeah. show up in the philosophical literature? Well, this is something that, that people argue about because some people would have it that, um, that in some respects the idea of being oneself um, is, is a is a relatively modern idea. Hmm. So some pe- some people would have you believe that it you know it starts from you know something like the 18th century, but it does seem to be bound up with with ideas that, as you say, people have been talking about as long as human beings have been reflecting on their lives. So it it seems to be tied up with ideas about whether you're whether you're acting on your own behalf or whether you're just acting in the way that you are because you think other people will approve of it? Right. Are you, um, you, you so? So you go back to these these really early discussions in 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 the Greeks, and you have ideas about wh- whether somebody might just be, as it were, playing a role. They're like actors on a stage rather than um, expressing themselves in their in their words and deeds. Mm. Um, so you know, in, although something interesting does seem to come into this this discussion when we come into the the modern era. It does seem to be tied up with some much older ideas, ones going right back to the, the Greeks and early Christianity. Yeah. I, I know you've thought a lot about Aristotle in this conversation mm. as somebody who, who thought a lot about the nature of self and how it's expressed and authenticity. C- could you tell us a little bit about how he thought about this subject? So certainly you, you find, as far back as Plato, you, you, you'll find discussions of um, whether somebody is is whether the person who is performing a, a good action is performing a good action because they themselves regard it as good, or whether they're just performing it for the sake of as we're pleasing the crowd. Mm. So they they want to avoid punishment. They might want to get honor. They might want to get a, get esteem and so on. And what you see coming through in in Aristotle in particular is this reflection on whether when somebody performs a good action, whether they're doing the action, as, as he puts it, whether, whether they're doing the action for its own sake. So you're not, as we're doing it instrumentally, you're not doing it in order to get some further other good, but because you yourself think it's good. So this seems to be um, a, 
a crucial idea, and it's one that we can we, we still certainly recognise now. This is one of these kind of timeless themes in the discussion of, of being oneself and of being authentic. This question of whether um, when someone performs a particular action, is it expressive of their own assessment, their own judgment of what's, what's a worthwhile course of action? Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, because I think maybe, I don't know if it's in a classical sense, but in some way, one very simple definition of authenticity would be the congruence between one's thoughts and actions, right? But mm-hmm. um, but then we get into these large questions, as, as you just said there, of am I doing this because I, I myself want to or think it's the right versus there may be some other good I'm trying to get towards or there, or societally, this is what should be expected of me. Therefore, I will do this. These are kind of some of the questions that come up. Yeah. And I think one of the, one of the most interesting twists here is, is that is that you can, uh, you know, we're familiar with, with, with if you like, what, what, what sometimes just gets called sincerity. You know, so you mm. know, is, is the person who I'm dealing with being sincere are the words that they're saying reflecting what they themselves actually think or are they lying to me but one of the the most important twists that you get as the uh, as the idea of um, being oneself and the idea of authenticity develops across the centuries is um, a growing concern with the question of whether we're lying to ourselves when we know ourselves what is motivating the actions that we're performing so you Mm -hmm. you see this coming through especially in in somebody like saint augustine um so you get you know these kind of early, early christian thinker where his work is fascinating because you know, it comes from a uh, a period which we wouldn't perhaps associate with with this kind of uh, sense of um, individuality, for instance. But what you do get in a in a thinker like Augustine is this obsession with this anxiety that maybe when uh, the, the the actions that he performs are really not driven by 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 the motives that he thinks they're driven by at all. That he's um, you know that the kinds of ends that he's pursuing are not really the ends that he thinks he's pursuing. Mm. So this sense of 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 having a, as it were a sort of a an inner self that can kind of escape us, so that so that you know we're not just lying to other people, we're also lying to ourselves. That seems to be become a, a, an idea that's very prominent as as the notion of being oneself develops across those centuries. Mm. And and I'm sure Christianity had a lot to say about this because. At what point are you acting for yourself or are you acting for God? And what's what's the greater yeah. ideal there? And and what's the nature of self there? Is is the is the natural state of self one that is actually just a sinner? And why would that be worth expressing versus something higher? What else can you add to that? Yeah, well I mean that's that's uh, in in some respects, I mean you 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 know, you're picking up on a couple of ideas that are developed even further um later on in the history of, of this discussion. Uh, but but as you, as you say, you know, you've already got this this sense of, you know, are you living? Is the way that you are living, the way that you should be living, um, in relationship to what is right, mm-hmm. or are you just living in line with what, uh, as as some of these thinkers put it, with what the world demands of you? So this the sense of the world as the uh, the secular world in which you might you know you 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 strive for fame, you strive for pleasure and so forth but is are your are your actions driven by um what's actually right and what you yourself think is right and obviously one way in which this question is framed is you know if you like could you could you stand before god um and and justify your actions or explain your actions could you could you allow yourself to stand before god or is it uh, and and that and if you like that notion is in a way given a twist later in the discussion of, of being oneself where you know it becomes this question of can you stand before yourself so the notion that that maybe you you know we're here to please others we're we're here to please society we're here to play certain roles um or can we tolerate looking at ourselves can we let can we allow god who of course in this uh you know for this tradition is is the person who sees the truth can i stand before god and so can i stand before the truth about myself mm-hmm. so as you say these these ideas get get crucial twists as we as we move through through those early years of christianity yeah and i think one, one of the large questions looming here is how, how do we even know what the self is i think of even going yeah. way further back to say buddhist philosophy which they say yeah, there, yeah. there is yeah. no self we're just <laughs> yeah we're a product of causes conditions that that form us into this being that that exists Absolutely. within this moment and yeah 
that's a whole other confounding issue within itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you so so one natural way for people to think about about the, these issues, as I've been saying myself, is um, you know you've got this juxtaposition of the there's me and there's society. But when our attention turns inwards, if you like, towards the towards towards me, um, there has been, as as you say, there's been in, in both Western philosophy and in Eastern philosophy. There have been worries for centuries uh, that we don't really know what this thing, the self, is. Uh, to the point where some people will will claim you, know, as, as you mentioned, it's a theme in Buddhist philosophy. Claim there just is no such thing, and that this is one of the delusions. Uh, so, if you like, uh, being being true to yourself would be the realization you haven't got one, right? Something like that. So, and and you certainly find that in Western philosophy as well. So. People like David Hume and Immanuel Kant has a version of that kind of worry. People like Nietzsche um, will, will, will press this question of, of when we talk about the self, when we talk about being true to ourselves, what is this object to which we are being told to be true? And is there such a thing? I mean, how do you make sense of that question? Because it's, sure. it's a little alarming to think that <laughs> yeah. there's nothing going yeah. on really that anchors us into any type of you know, reality or sense of personality or self. But what, what yeah. do you think? I think, I mean, there, there are a few different understandings of, of, of authenticity of being oneself, which, which I think have a, um, a certain kind of appeal. So, so one, one idea would be that... Um, you know, maybe there are certain kinds of feelings or commitments that you have that are most distinctively you. That are that that you know, if you live in line with those desires, with those commitments, then that's your being yourself. So um, that would be one kind of model of of just what it is to be yourself. It obviously, faces all sorts of difficulties because you know, figuring out which bits of your if you like, you're you're in a mental um, furniture. Is the real you? Sure. Um, sure. That's one of the, the the difficulties. And and people will say, you know, what what if some of these commitments that you that you feel are most you? Um, what if it turns out that that you're wedded to them because of say the way you were brought up, mm-hmm. or you know maybe you were brainwashed in in some sort of way? So so you know it's it's that that's a problematic notion. Um, but at least it gives you some kind of sense of what it would be to be true to yourself. A model that I myself uh, 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 drawn to is the thought that one expresses oneself when one expresses oneself as a whole. Now, now what, what I mean by that is, um, you know, we, we, we'll often find ourselves in, in, in situations in which... Um, you know, we we are effectively having to kind of silence some of the voices we 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 hear in ourselves, uh, because you know you've just got to do your job, mm-hmm. or you've just got to do what your family wants you to do. And and one way of understanding that as a kind of failure to express yourself is that you're not being able to bring to bear in your in your in your reflections um, everything that you think, all of your values, all of your commitments. It, it, it's almost certainly going to be true that you can't express all of your values and all of your commitments in any particular action. But, but w- one thing we can we can do is we can make what I, there's a notion I use sometimes: the idea of an all things considered judgment. Mm. So that you are yourself when you judge all things considered. You, you've, as it were, brought all of your um, beliefs, all of your desires, all of your commitments to bear on the situation in front of you. And you've and you've decided there on the basis of all of them together what you think is is best. So this would be the idea that um, it's it's not so much there are some little if you like parts of you that are yourself, and if you act in line with them, you're being yourself. The thought would be instead that you are yourself when you act as the whole that you are, when you bring to get when you bring to bear all of your thoughts and, and feelings on on your situation. It might, of course, mean that that you know when when you when you come to these judgments about um, what all things considered would be best, it it may be that you you know you end up with a judgment about which you're not hugely happy, for instance. Mm. Um, but it does seem to me that there's a recognisable sense in which that is self-expression. 
um, that you that's that's a sense that's a recognizable sense in which I have said what I myself think on this topic. So yeah. I, so I haven't, as we're just looked at it as a parent, or looked at it uh, say as a professor or as a you know a British citizen. I've looked at I've looked at the situation in light of all of the all of these things that I am, um, and that when I do that. I express myself. So, so if you like, I've expressed all of myself rather than just a fragment of myself. Why is this conversation about authenticity so, I, I feel so, so present right now culturally? You know, I mean, in general, I think we're just obsessed with, with the authentic when it comes to art or when it comes to food. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I just, I feel like I see it everywhere. Everyone's reaching into the past to the, for food, to the, to the recipes of the grandmother because they made it the authentic way or... You know, yeah, yeah. the literature yeah. that was written in, by the authentic writer or it, there's so much in that that's present uh, for us. Why is that, do you think? I mean, certainly one key element in the notion of authenticity, which, you know, we, you hear it when we talk about things like an authentic work of art, for instance, um, is that connection with not being fake. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, you know, this is an authentic Rembrandt. It's not a fake Rembrandt. Um, and... I think it is a, a recognizable theme in 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 modern life, perhaps in particular in modern life, the sense of of living in a um, in in circumstances in which we're constantly being bombarded, if you like, with the fake, hmm. um, and we're constantly being bombarded with suggestions about how we should live, which have more to do with the desire of the person selling the product than than what we ourselves might. Um, actually want and, and I guess you, you, you know you might say that that there are certain features of modern life that exacerbate these kinds of dangers um, so you know we I think a lot of us you know feel we're m- more than ever bombarded with in- information about as were, ways of living which um, w- which are promoting themselves as the way in- to live indeed uh, sometimes, you know, presented as these are the ways in which, you know, if, if you act in these ways, you will be yourself. Um, mm. So so even sold on the basis of authenticity, authenticity itself ends up being used as a kind of marketing yeah, of uh, device too. Whether there is, if you like, the dangers of inauthenticity are worse now than they were in, in times gone gone by, it's difficult to, to say. There certainly are circumstances that have, that have changed Across the centuries, that which which seem to have changed the 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 importance of this idea. So, you quite often people uh, hear people saying that that the worry about being yourself and the worry about authenticity didn't really make sense as long as we had some notion uh, that each and every one of us was had, a, if you like, a, a God given place in in the world, and, mm. and you know each of us was, uh, if you like, assigned a station in life with its with its duties associated with it. But but as I think I mentioned before, in, in some respects, worries about whether we're really being ourselves are older than than that. I, I don't want to deny that that there are that that there might be a distinctive kind of change in our understanding of of authenticity, especially to do with ideas about individuality, the 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 notion that it's important not just to be yourself, but the idea that maybe you need to be the distinctive, unique individual that you yourself are that does seem to be an idea that emerges you know with with the 18th century mm. onwards it seems to be tied up with ideas that you you find in romanticism for instance but of course for many of us that seems that it's a huge burden to bear this idea that you have to you know not, not only do you have to, to to be straight with yourself not only do you have to be honest with yourself but you have to be in some way enacting some unique original life um, that's that's somehow you know truly distinctive of you. Right. It, I think for a lot of us that seems like that's going to be hard work. <laughs> and I think there's an anxiety in that. I think there's there's mm. a fear in all of us that that somehow we're not living up to that. And and maybe it yeah. is a romantic ideal. I, I I wonder where you could trace that back to, and you could say a little bit more about that because I think. It, there's this idea that if we're if we're not all expressing ourselves in a way that is so truly yeah. individualistic that somehow that we're we've conformed or we're not we're not that yeah. special so uh, <laughs> yeah. go on about that yeah. please yeah 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 absolutely you know just to go back to some of these these central uh, motifs in this uh, tradition of thinking about this these 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 issues there's 
you know, you you can you can trace back to the to the Greeks the worry that that social life is kind of artificial, that there's some kind of artificiality about society, um, and that uh, we we as individuals are real enough, but the social is kind of constructed and it's not it's not fundamentally real. And 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 this gets a particularly striking formulation in, in the in the thinking of people like Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who um, is one of these first thinkers who really opens up the thought that conventional morality, for instance, conventional social mores, as they as they put it, might be bogus and might be imposed upon us. So he thinks that um, the kinds of individuals that he sees around him in his uh, in his life, the people who are celebrated for being sophisticated, for being cultured, um, he thinks of he he describes them as um, as these expressions about you. Know, he's surrounded by artificial men with counterfeit passions, mm. and he thinks that you know all sorts of, obs- of of concerns that are central to the lives of the people who he deals with, and certainly still true today, don't actually help us to express ourselves. They don't set us free, even though we're being told that they will. And there'll be things like material possessions, private property. So. You know, he's responding to philosophers who are saying um, to have a free society, you need a society which will protect individuals' private property and their pursuit of private property, their their pursuit of wealth, Mm -hmm. for instance. And along comes Rousseau and says, it might be the case that the pursuit of wealth is the last thing you need. It's the last thing that's setting you free. And that, you know, that, that kind of thought. You know, rings rings through the centuries to us now. The you know, worries about consumerism and so forth. Um, that you know, we're, we're told, you know, what, what is it to live a fulfilled life? Well, you know, as long as you're happy to devote 38 weeks of your of your 52 week uh, year to working for somebody uh, who you don't like in a job that you don't find rewarding, but you do get your four weeks of um, lavish holiday, then that's living a fulfilled life. Um, somebody like a, a Rousseau is certainly, you know, is, is is one of the first philosophers to to suggest you know, maybe some of these these mores, maybe some of these um, these social norms that we're being presented with are not really setting us free. They're not. Um, you're, you're not autonomous when you act in line with them, even though you're being told, you know, this is this is, you know, if you if you if you have the money, you can determine the the, the course of your own life. Well, I think a lot of us. Have the, have the fear that that may not actually be true if, if for instance, if, if securing the means of living that life involves you living in ways which most of the time you don't find self-expressive, to, yeah, put, right. to put it that way. How do we see Rousseau still play out now when we think about the, this idea of the individual and, and yeah. trying, to cra- uh, trying to craft this very special self uh, that, that should be akin to a work of art? I mean, is this still present now? Yeah, yeah. I think in some respects his, his vision is still alive. The, the notion that, if you like, the, the inner natural self might be the self that you should be is one which um, has a certain kind of appeal coming from Rousseau developed by romanticism but of course one of the things that happens in the 19th century is people start looking at this supposedly natural inner self uh, which is in some way you know perhaps offered as uh, some sort of touchstone for the for the truth the moral truth people's doubts turn towards that as well so whether um if you like your 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 inner voice really is expressive of you starts to become something that we worry about. Uh, we worry about whether it itself might be just shaped by, a, if you like, a, a, an older set of, his, of historical causes that we, we just don't see. So um, you get this idea in Nietzsche where, where he's, he's talking about how um, people celebrate listening to their own inner conscience, but, but really what's happening when they do that is they're just kind of... Par- all they're really doing is... Uh, parroting the opinions of their grandparents. Mm. So, you know, if you like, you know, these are these are views that that we were taking on when we were young. Um, we absorbed them into ourselves. We don't remember where they came from. We don't we don't know the story about how they formed, uh, and that kind of obscure origin uh, of them makes us think, ah, oh, well, they must come from just me. They just come from within. So, 
when when a, you know for the, for the likes of a, a Nietzsche, it's that that's just a, a sort of misdescription of the fact that we don't actually understand where these opinions came from. Right. But really, it's just it's just again, it's the opinions of others. Mm. And, and of course, just to to mention one last other theme, um, which really comes out with say Freud and um, when we start thinking about you know the, the image of the heart of darkness, people will also look at that inner voice with suspicion because there'll be the worry that maybe some of the deep inner drives that we find within ourselves are uh, are not to be promoted but need to be tamed need to be controlled so you know you have that that sort of image of within in freudian psychoanalysis of the you know, of of the child as as um if you like a you know a little monster who if if you complied with with his or her inner self uh if you let them be themselves you'd end up with a creature that uh, you know, you you couldn't form friendships with, you mm-hmm. couldn't form human relationships with. So, so that the the thought there would be that that maybe it's it's crucial to the formation of anything that we might think of a, a human being that has any kind of um, ethic to it. Perhaps even any kind of human being who who can act on their own behalf might take a bit of social shaping. Might need socialization. Yeah. I've been speaking with with Dennis McManus, professor of philosophy at the University of Southampton. Thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Still to come, what if it's less about being yourself, but instead more about recognizing that each of us contain multiple selves? We'll also explore what imposter syndrome is all about and why certain populations might suffer from it more than others. That's all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Professor Dennis McManus, professor of philosophy at the University of Southampton, discuss some of the deep philosophical questions about what it means to be authentic. But are we more than just one self? Is it perhaps a little bit more complicated and varied than we think? Dr. Richard Schwartz is the founder of Internal Family Systems. It's a type of psychotherapy that acknowledges that we all have multiple parts within ourselves. Think for a second about the calming inner voice you hear sometimes. Or perhaps you're more familiar with the loud internal critic or perfectionist. These voices or parts have different characteristics and histories. And according to Schwartz, they're alive and active within each of us. To explain how all this works, Dick Schwartz joins us now. Welcome to Life Examined. It's an honor for me, Jonathan. I appreciate your interest. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, some of your earlier work in psychotherapy and um, particularly when you began to notice that we um, we have different parts of who we are, of ourselves. You were working uh, primarily with young women who were dealing with different types of eating disorders. Can you talk about that experience and, and kind of how it shifted your thought about, about who we are and who is speaking um, from within us. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, this goes back almost 40 years now, because I'm pretty old. And I uh, was a fresh PhD out of a marital and family therapy program. And I was one of those obnoxious family therapists that thought we'd found the holy grail and we <laughs> knew how to fix people without right. having to muck around in their intrapsychic world. And uh, to prove that, I decided to do an outcome study with bulimia, which was uh, sort of newly discovered at that time, and gathered together about 30 bulimic kids and their families and did straight family therapy and found that it wasn't working. And uh, so out of frustration, I began asking some of these kids, what are we doing wrong? What's going on? And why do you keep, why do you continue to binge? And they started to talk about these different parts of them. You know, at first it sounded strange. I got scared that maybe these kids are sicker than I thought because they would talk about them as if they had a lot of autonomy. And 
and they and they interacted inside their their minds all the time and then as a family therapist i started to get intrigued after i got over my initial concern and also i started noticing that i have them too if i just paid attention inside i could see some similar kinds of what i could call parts now too and some of mine were actually as extreme about food as theirs hmm. and so with that i got curious and uh began to try and explore ways to help them with this inner system and found that the ways that I, the way I was construing the parts, which was this critic they would talk about, was probably some kind of internalized parental voice and the binge was an out of control impulse, that those conceptualizations led me to try and be very controlling and try and get my clients to fight with the critic and control the binge and and clients were coming back saying it's getting worse but I didn't know what to do other than to tell them to do it stronger or more until the first client that I was aware of that had an extensive sex abuse history and also cut herself on her wrists and uh, I decided that I wasn't going to let her keep doing that and so we sort of ganged up on the cutting part one session and spent a couple hours with me badgering it and her badgering it. And finally it said, okay, I won't cut her this week. And I opened the door to the next session and she had a big gash down the side of her face. And that was a turning point in the history of this because I kind of collapsed out of that controlling place and spontaneously said, uh, I can't beat you with this, I give up. And the part said, I don't really want to beat you. And then I shifted into just pure curiosity and asked why it kept doing it to her. And it talked about how much it had to get her out of her body when she was being sexually abused as a child and also had to contain this rage that was there that would get her more abuse. And with that, I shifted once again. Now I'm not just curious, but I have a kind of appreciation for the heroic role it played in her life because uh, it really had to do that back then and continue to ask more questions. And as I got to know it more and more, it seemed like it wasn't living in the present, like it was still living back in the abuse time. Mm -hmm. And it thought it still had to do this. You ultimately notice that that within within each person there seem to be three three major parts that oftentimes get expressed. There's there's the exile, there's the firefighter, there's the manager. I, I wonder if you could say a little bit about about these parts just briefly, if you could. Yeah. Well, one of the things that became clear as I kept doing this was that none of these parts were what they seemed. Like the cutting part, they were good parts that were forced into extreme and sometimes damaging roles by the traumas that we suffer or by the attachment injuries. That means bad parenting that we encounter. <clears throat> and, and so one of the basic premises of IFS is that there aren't any bad parts. They're all, it's sort of the nature of the mind to be this way, to have parts. We come into the world that way and they're all valuable and they'll stay in their valuable roles unless we or until we encounter trauma and they're forced to take these extreme roles. And as I got interested in exploring that more, it became clear that there was, uh, I'm a systems thinker, so I'm trying to see if there are distinctions. And the big distinction that's held up over all these 40 years is between the parts of us that before they were hurt were these sort of innocent inner children who, because they're so sensitive, get hurt the most by these experiences. And after they get hurt, now they carry what I'm going to call the burden of emotional pain or shame or terror. And we don't want anything to do with them anymore. So we tend to lock them in inner basements or caves and uh, try to stay away from that because they now have the power to bring us to overwhelm us and bring us back to those scenes. 
and we so we do that not knowing that we're what I'm, my word is exiling the parts of us that are the juiciest really and the most loving and playful and creative simply because they got hurt mm. we think we're just moving on from memories and sensations and emotions that we don't want to deal with anymore we want to move on from so it became clear that clients had and, and all of us have a bunch of exiles and when you get a bunch of exiles you feel a lot more delicate and the world is a lot more dangerous so you have other parts that are forced into roles of protector and they try to control the world so you don't get triggered so people don't get close enough to hurt you so you look good so people don't criticize you you achieve a lot so you get a lot of accolades to counter the worthlessness <clears throat> and so we all seem to have a group of protectors I call managers who are trying to manage our lives so these exiles don't get triggered but they still do get triggered and when that happens it's a big emergency so there's another set of parts we call firefighters because they're trying to fight the flames of exiled emotion that's coming out and they tend to be much more impulsive and reactive and and sometimes um, not caring about the consequences of what they do the collateral damage to your body to your relationships and they tend to be those uh, binging kinds of parts or um, rage sometimes or you know, anything that's very impulsive to get you away from that vulnerable feeling as quickly as possible so it isn't so much that there are three kinds of parts it's more that there are these three classes that are not the essence of the part but the roles these parts get forced into hmm. and what i think is is kind of fascinating about this is that instead of looking at all of these like they're they're trying to hurt us or they're hurt a, or to hurt a client or whoever they're all kind of trying to protect the, the greater sense right. of self isn't that right that's exactly right and we work with all kinds of parts that actually have done damage you know we do this in prisons now with murderers and uh, rapists and so on and and i have a long history of working with that population and i'm here to say that even those parts that have done heinous things if you get curious about them will share their secret history of how they were forced into their role and they they carry what we call burdens so a lot of the problems in the culture are because we've mistaken the part for the burden it carries. Mm. By that I mean these extreme beliefs and emotions that came into us from the trauma and sort of get attached to the part, almost like the vi a virus, like the corona, and then drive the way the part operates afterwards. And a lot of the healing comes from helping these parts trust it's safe to unburden to release these extreme beliefs and emotions and which almost magically they'll return to their naturally valuable states. You also in your work talk about this other self. There's something that, that is also present beyond these, these three different aspects of the parts. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think it's an important one here. Yeah, it actually is the big discovery, for lack of a better word, of IFS. The fact that if you can simply get these parts to open a little space inside, that this other person emerges spontaneously and knows how to heal, knows how to heal inside, knows how to relate to these parts in a you know, loving way, curious way, calm way, and also can do the same in the outside world. And when I encountered that sort of serendipitously just by doing some of this family therapy with the inner family and asking parts to open space and, and they would uh, I was amazed that this person would pop out in it's like the same person would suddenly pop out in all these different clients and could take over the session almost and would would manifest qualities like calm and curious and compassion what we call the eight C's of self-leadership. Also, confidence, courage, creativity, clarity, and connectedness. And when people were in that state, 
they would literally start to heal themselves. And now, 40 years later, doing, having done this with thousands of clients, thousands of therapists doing this all over the world, we can safely say that that self is in everybody and can't be damaged and is just beneath the surface of these parts such that when they open space and emerge it spontaneously. That's a big deal, actually. Mm. I've been speaking with Dick Schwartz. He's the founder of Internal Family Systems. Um, thanks for joining us from Boston this morning. Really appreciated the conversation. I did too, Jonathan. Thanks so much. We'll finish this week by returning to our core theme, authenticity. This can be a challenge for those who doubt their abilities or feel like they don't belong. Feeling accepted can be especially difficult for those groups traditionally disenfranchised. Women of color especially are often made to feel that they're not good enough. Andrea Salazar-Nunez is a staff psychologist at the University of Washington Counseling Center in Seattle, and she's also the owner of Mariposa Counseling and Consultation Services. She commonly works with what we call imposter syndrome and says providing the space to express ourselves freely and safely is vitally important. Andrea Salazar-Nunez, welcome to Life Examined. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Okay, imposter syndrome. We all deal with it in our own way. It's, it's uncomfortable and so present. How do you describe what imposter syndrome is and, and how it shows up? Um, I think in general terms, um, imposter syndrome, or how it was originally sort of coined an imposter phenomenon, um, is um, really a sense of like not feeling good enough mm. um, in whatever the context that is. You know, I'm at the university, so I deal a lot with um, graduate students not feeling good enough. Or um, in my private practice, it's folks feeling like the space that they're in, you know, at work when they have to lead a meeting or a training um, and not feeling like they know enough, um, that they're good enough, um, that they're competent enough, or that somebody is going to expose them of their incompetence. Like mm. they're somehow managed to get into some position where really, though, they feel like they don't actually belong there. And, and somehow it was a mistake mm. that they were able to get in that position. Is this something that psychologists have noticed for, for a long time? Or is it a fairly new phenomenon? What do you think? I think um, it's something that has been out there. And I, th I think in terms of like the clinical world, I think we've kind of known that it's out there. But I think it, it's become more and more common because um, it's it's experienced um, a lot more frequently for folks who have more of an underrepresented identity in certain spaces. So for women, um, people of color, women of color. Um, so I think it's becoming more and more part of the conversation and part of um, even uh, for clinicians an understanding of what might be happening when people are talking about feeling like not good enough for a space. It maybe is not just, like I said, a feeling of insecurity or um, you know, self-esteem or confidence, but an actual phenomenon <laughs> happening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you said something really important there, which is that it might show up for groups that are marginalized or historically have been kind of held down or, or put into certain spaces. Can, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, I think that's one of the most important pieces of understanding um, imposter syndrome, especially um, you know, I work with a lot of students of color and, um, and women of color, especially. It's the way that it may show up generally is like, like I said, not feeling good enough, not um, feeling like um, competent enough or that someone's going to catch them, you know, and they're really a fraud. I think when I work with folks of color, it's more than just that feeling. It's also you have to put it into context. And there's this historical um, context that um, comes with that feeling. Um, being marginalized, um, in, internalized messages that we see all over the media about our, our sense of self and, and um, representation. So it, it's not just um, feeling like maybe not good enough, but really like, do I belong here? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be accepted here? Mm -hmm. um, and all of those things kind of coming together and, and really feeling like an imposter. Right. Well, can you say more about how, how a client might describe this feeling? You know, a person of color comes into your office. How might this be expressed? Yeah, well, um, like I said, I think more and more, um, especially women of color, are, are able to identify it and they'll come and kind of asking me um, to work on it. But I, I've, what I've noticed for um, men of color, actually, in particular, mm. is that they'll be complaining that they feel like, you know, they are in these meetings and talking to these professors and feeling like their experiences are not 
good enough or that they are coming from such a different perspective um, that they feel like people won't understand them and they have to work extra hard mm. to um, you know, use the right words, um, say the right things, um, you, you know, try to fit in to, you know, this like academic culture, um, that they feel so, um, distant from and, and it feels so foreign. And so a lot of times they'll come in sort of confused, like, I don't know what's going on. I just feel like I can't, um, connect in these mm. you know, spaces. And that's when we kind of, I will kind of talk about what imposter syndrome is, um, and this feeling of like someone's going to catch you that you're a fraud, right? And, um, right, and put context to it, and then it kind of becomes ah, oh, okay, I see. So it's, I'm not the problem. I'm not defective. <laughs> this mm. is like contextual. Yeah, it's interesting how when you can give certain things like this a name, uh, there's almost something healing in that, isn't there? Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It, and I, that is very clear when when I have a client that comes in and we're able to name it, then it all of a sudden feels like they can um, stop internalizing all these negative thoughts about themselves and mm. just kind of see it for what it is right. and then work with it. I'm trying to figure out the right way to ask this because we acknowledge structural racism around us everywhere. And yet in psychology, there's also this question of people having their own kind of internal projections on the world outside of them. How does this fit into the conversation about imposter syndrome? For folks of color, especially experiencing imposter syndrome, is it's not only feeling like, am I competent enough to be in this space? Or am I going to be seen as a fraud? Is somebody going to catch me? You know, how did I get in this space? But it's also like um, I use the example of, you know, you're walking through the halls of, you know, the University of Washington. Maybe you're going to an interview or something, you know, do a presentation. If you look at the pictures of the leadership of the university, you know, historically, you see a lot mm. of white men, white men on the yeah, walls, sure. right? And yeah. and and so the it's not just this feeling, but there's this like subtle messaging like all around you for um, like almost confirming that feeling inside. Um, and so there is some of that like microaggressions, um, implicit bias that are playing into the imposter syndrome and then we internalize it. And then yes, mm. then we start to think, am I good enough? Maybe I'm not. And having that self-defeating narrative inside. How do you as a clinician begin to work with this? Yeah. So um, first thing I always, you know, like I said, name it. I think one of the things that, you know, um, it can be really helpful is kind of separating, you know, is that internal voice just me or mm. where is this coming from? So really contextualizing it and, and, and naming the phenomenon and, and what's happening so they can kind of diffuse a little bit from um, that really um, difficult internal dialogue um, and, and narrative. One thing we're, we're exploring on this program are, are questions of authenticity. What does it mean to be authentic? And how do you know when you're tapping into what feels like a real self um, or a genuine voice? I, I wonder for you how this comes up in the therapy room or if it does and, and if it all relates to questions of imposter syndrome. Because I think that's something we're always looking for, right, is, is a question of internal authenticity. Yeah, I, I do think it's related because that's part of the work that we do also is, you know, how do you find your voice outside of sort of these oppressive structures mm -hmm. and, and feeling like you have to conform or, or be a certain way um, to feel accepted or a sense of belonging. Um, and, and, you know, for certain folks who've been afforded the uh, the um, space um, to be authentic, right? Um, it, it may be a radical experience for a woman of color to be able to really um, tap into their authentic voice um, and not feel sort of that sense of um, imposter syndrome or, or a shame for not, you know, having the same sort of background as someone who, who maybe is, um, who has more of that privilege, like a quite straight male. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think they're very related. I think that's part of the work we do too is um, you know, instead of trying to help them manage through the conformity of like being able to conform in those spaces is how do you be your authentic you in those spaces mm. and understand that those feelings that pop up of insecurity may be related to the context and not necessarily um, anything wrong with you. Right. So it's almost um, being able to distinguish what's yeah. going on in the noise. What, what is my voice in this? Uh, what are my projections? What are my fears or insecurities, right? And how do we isolate those different parts of ourselves, which sounds, you know, really empowering. I think that's what is so hard, I think, for, for people of color, especially, is trying to differentiate, like, where is this internalized racism? And where is, you know, my authentic voice? Mm. And do I have the, um, 
you know, uh, will to like bring myself into these spaces, sure. my, my true authentic self. Right, yeah. right. And it must just be interesting when you have these conversations with people who are on paper extremely successful or bright or brilliant or pursuing mm-hmm. all this impressive graduate work. And, and you're looking at, you know, you can still be the most accomplished person in the world and still really not feel great about yourself in certain situations. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I've worked with some, especially women in academia, who I'm amazed on all the research and right. all of the, the stuff that they've accomplished in just their, their graduate years at the university. Um, and they still, you know, really struggle with finding, you know, their voice and, and feeling confident in those spaces. And, and like I said, sometimes it's just because they don't see themselves reflected in, in that space in general. And so it's hard to really um, own that you know, your voice in, in that space um, when you don't see it modeled for you, too. Well, lastly, t- just to touch on the historical piece here, um, there's there's a phrase I know you've used before, which is what seems hysterical is often historical. W- what did you mean in the context of this conversation? Yeah, this is where, you know, a lot of the work that I do with folks of color is putting things into context. When we lose track of like the history mm. um, and, and and how we've gotten to where we've gotten now, it can feel like what we're experiencing, what's coming up for us um, emotionally, even the sensations in our body, the, physio- the physiological sort of reactions can feel like it's just coming out of nowhere, coming out of the blue. But when you start to trace everything back and you look at racial trauma and intergenerational transmission of trauma, um, oppression, you know, racism, um, you, start, you start to just, you know, look back, you start to realize that this this isn't from anywhere, from, from out of the blue. Um, it is um, part of the historical context that, that you are connected to in, in your identity. Um, and so it's incredibly important to like to put that into context because so many times the people of color feel like, um, you know, and, and it's related to imposter syndrome because especially in those professional spaces, they feel like not good enough. Mm. Um, but just in general, like, why do I have so much anxiety? Why do I have so much depression? Um, you know, why am I struggling with so many health problems? You have to put it into context. You have to look back and say, well, you know, there's been racial weathering given like different, you know, inequities and disparities in the healthcare system, you know, segregation, all those things, right, um, play into what's happening today and when we forget that it it can make someone feel like like gaslighted like why am i Mm -hmm. you know experiencing the things um and and there's there's no validation around me um of of why i should be feeling that way and so with that context really helps um put things in perspective um and then it can kind of even be turned around to be looked at as resilience look how far you've come Mm. and your abilities despite all of that yeah I, i love that last piece well, Andrea Salazar-Nunez, staff psychologist at the University of Washington Counseling Center in Seattle, also the owner of Mariposa Counseling and Consultation Services, really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Well, that's it for Life Examined this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. You can find us online at kcrw.org lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us. We'll see you next week.